Hello, everyone, and welcome to this session. I hope you've had a lovely lunch where you've seen some old friends and met some new ones as well. Um, welcome to the third session uh, of the day, which is Facing Long-Term Challenges. My name is Ipek Gensu, and I'm the Acting Director of the Climate and Sustainability Programme at ODI. Uh, if I may say so myself, I think our team is one of the most collaborative ones at ODI. We work across um, all the different agendas that ODI works on, on finance, on economic development, on gender, uh, because my team's quite friendly bunch of people, but uh, more importantly, because obviously we know that climate and sustainability are really pressing challenges um, that we have to deal with. But even though they are becoming increasingly uh, pressing, it's very difficult to tackle them and to put in place the, the transformative plans and the investments needed, given governments are struggling with much more urgent and short-term fiscal pressures as well. So um, in this morning sessions, uh, you, you heard a lot about the kind of short term pressures and challenges. So now we will discuss some of the longer term uh, issues, including climate change. We will be asking questions such as how do finance ministries look beyond balancing the books in the short term and what types of analysis and institutions can help us focus attention on long term challenges and fiscal risks ranging from climate change to sustainability. So to do this, uh, I've got a brilliant panel with me here today. We've got uh, Arvind Mariam and Rosamund Edwards, uh, who is joining us online, who both served as financial secretary to their respective uh, finance ministries in India and Dominica. And it's going to be interesting to see the similarities and the differences between the challenges faced by those two countries. But first, to kick us off, we will hear uh, from Richard Hughes, to my right. Richard also started his career in the Finance Ministry, the UK Treasury, with subsequent roles supporting other governments, including through the IMF, where he was Division Chief in the Fiscal Affairs Department from 2008 to 2016. And since 2020, he's been the Chair of the UK's uh, Office for Budget Responsibility. So over to you, uh, Richard, to tell us a little bit about UK's fiscal risks and sustainability report and how it influences the decisions of the government. Great. Thanks. If I can, and I, I thought I might start out with some reflections on wider forecasting bodies like ours, whether they're inside or outside of finance ministries, need to put particular effort into uh, analysing long-term challenges. And I think I'd start from a reflection on, the, on our experiences from the pandemic and the energy crisis, which I think has demonstrated that our democratic political systems have been pretty good at managing big problems in the here and now. In, in response to the pandemic, our countries have been remarkably innovative and successful in keeping our economies on life support, while our scientists developed and rolled out novel vaccines to the population to address the root cause of the economic shocks faced from the pandemic. And then more recently, at least in Europe, in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we here in Europe have stopped buying Russian gas, managed to protect our households and businesses from rising energy bills, and club together to provide Ukraine with everything that we can uh, to defend themselves. Both these interventions have, of course, proven very fiscally expensive, but there seems to have been a reasonable consensus that alternative strategies would have proved even more expensive um, had they been pursued, or indeed had we just done, done nothing. But I think by contrast, what our societies seem to be less good at is facing up to threats that build up slowly and loom just over the end of the forecasting horizon or over the end of the political uh, political horizon. There's, there's something deep in our human natures which lead us to put off making difficult decisions now, even if in so doing, we could actually make our lives uh, much easier, much safer, 
and much more enjoyable later on. And so it is to sort of counteract this tendency toward short-termism um, and sometimes toward a, a, need, a need to feel optimistic about the future in, in the face of evidence of the contrary, that organizations like us were given a mandate to produce and publish in addition to our six monthly, five-year forecasts, an annual report which looks at fiscal risks um, and sustainability and looks at these kind of long-term challenges that loom just beyond the forecast horizon that is used for conventional budget decision-making. And the aim of these reports is to bring greater focus on the areas where we expect the future to be different from the present and where this renders current policy settings unsustainable. So that they, they can't be sustained into the future without leading uh, to unsupportable fiscal stress. And to give you an illustration of this presentation of just three areas that we've looked at, in recent reports, we've looked at the areas of demographic change, we've looked at the area of climate change, and we've looked at the area of geopolitical uncertainty. And I'll give you a sense of the kind of analysis that we've done around those kind of those kind of long term challenges and why we think they matter fiscally and happy to get into in the discussion. So you know, what difference this kind of analysis uh, can and has made uh, to policymaking. And let me start with demographics, um, where the starting point for all of our analysis is a fairly detailed model of the individual's financial relationship with the state um, at different at different stages in their lives, which you can see represented here on the chart. Um, the, this, this is uh, your, your, what you pay in tax is the green line, depending on your age, uh, from age zero all the way to age 100. Um, what you receive in terms of public spending is shown there in the black line. Um, and then a more detailed breakdown of what you receive in terms of public support is provided in, in the colored lines. Um, and, and what it shows is a pretty simple message, which is that young people are expensive fiscally because you have to educate them. Um, old people are expensive fiscally because you have to pay them a pension and eventually they get sick and you have to give them health care. And the people in the middle pay for everybody else. And if you superimposed on this, uh, which, which I've done here, what was the median age of the UK population 50 years ago today and in 50 years time? What you can see is that demographic change wasn't a big problem, or at least it was less of a worry um, back in the 1970s, because the median age was about 33, and half of the population was still on the right-hand side of that line, and many, and most of which were making a net contribution to the public finances because that green line was well above that black line. But by the middle of this century, the median age will be 40, which is about as good as it gets uh, fiscally, um, as measured in the gap between the green line and, and the black line. Uh, sorry, the middle, of the, the middle of this decade. So in 2025, um, the median age will be 40, which is about as good as it gets from the point of view of the exchequer. The gap between that green line and the black line um, is, is at its peak. But in 50 years time, the median age will be 48, with more than half of the population past the point of, of peak net contribution to the public purse and growing numbers being net recipients uh, of public support. And this chart here shows a more detailed breakdown of the population into age cohorts, with the basic picture that being between 1970 and 2070, we're going to go from a position from having two people in work for every one person in retirement to one person in work for every one person in retirement. And over the next 50 years, as you can see from, from this chart and the bar on, on the far right, the fastest increase in the population is happening amongst those who are 85 and older, which is shown there in gray, who often have multiple complex healthcare needs and whose health has not generally been improving in recent years. So people are living longer, but they're not necessarily spending more of their lives in good health. Um, more of their lives is actually being spent in ill health, which puts even more pressure on the public finances if that's where your population growth is gonna be the highest. And so if we keep our current obligations to pay tax and rights to draw on public services unchanged, this generates a growing gap between the two, which you can see here on this chart. 
If you hold the tax burden roughly steady at around 37% of GDP, which is what our tax system broadly does, what spending does is rise by about 10% of GDP, with health, health accounting for seven percentage points of that increase and the state pension accounting for another three percentage points. And this results in a growing primary deficit, which reaches, which, which reaches around 10% of GDP by the time you get out to the 2070s. And depending on how risky you think the future is going to be, running a structural deficit of that size for 50 years would, all else being equal, lead to either a tripling or a quadrupling of, of our debt burden over the next 50 years to around 100% of GDP where it is at the moment, to around 300% or 450% by the time we get out to the 2070s. And so to, to put that number in some kind of historical context, Britain's only ever had debt above 200% of GDP twice in its history, once at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, and again at the end of the Second World War in 1945. So something is going to have to give either on the tax side or on the spending side or on the demographic side if we're going to avoid building up what, what are going to be unsustainable levels of debt if we leave exi existing tax and spending policies unchanged. A second area where the future is likely to be very different from the present and, currency and current policy settings are unsustainable is in the area of climate change. We know that we can't keep relying on fossil fuels to drive our economies if we're going to stop global runaway global warming. And the UK, like other advanced economies, has committed itself to getting to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And while we've made considerable progress um, toward that goal since 1990, cutting our emissions by over 40% over that period, more than half of that progress in the UK has been thanks to the fact that we've switched from coal-fired power plants, which is very dirty and CO2 in intensive, to gas-fired power generation as our principal source of getting where we've got to so far between 1990 and the present, which is what, which is what you can see in that yellow bar. We've made less progress in decarbonizing other aspects of our economy and getting the rest of the way toward net zero is likely to, to be more complex and more expensive, involving getting people out of their petrol-driven cars and into electric vehicles, replacing our now gas-fired power plants with renewable alternatives, and replacing gas-fired boilers in houses and commercial buildings also with electric alternatives. And in the OBR um, in 2021, in the report that we did uh, on fiscal risk and sustainability, we worked with our colleagues in the Climate Change Committee here in the UK to look at what might be the fiscal costs of making that transition and getting the rest of the way to net zero by 2050. And we started with their central estimate of what the whole economy costs would, might be of making the transition to net zero by 2050, which they estimate to be around 1.3 trillion pounds in gross terms, but only about 30 billion pounds in net terms once you take into account the savings that are generated by the transition. And in particular, as you, as you can see from this chart, many of those savings come from the transition in transport and industry. Um, but in other areas, and in particular the replacement of household gas boilers with zero carbon alternatives, which are shown here in the yellow bars, there are significant net costs which society needs to bear if they're going to successfully decarbonize and get to net zero by 2050. And in our report, we looked at what pressures that making this transition might put on the public finances, because not all of these, not all of these costs that you see the economy incurring would fall to the public purse. Um, but we did try and look at and, and make some reasonable estimations about what share of them might fall uh, to the UK exchequer. And it yielded some interesting insights, um, which you can see generated by this graph, which is the net cost in terms of addition to debt that the UK may have to pay to get to net zero between now and 2050. The first interesting insight is that the overall, what we estimate the overall net fiscal cost of getting to net zero to be around 20% of GDP in terms of addition to debt. Now that sounds like a reasonable amount, 
um, but we've already got 100% debt to GDP ratio now. Just getting through the pandemic cost roughly this amount in terms of additional debt, um, as did getting through the, through the financial crisis. So it is potentially a big fiscal cost, but one which you know, we've incurred before in trying to get through previous, uh, previous crises facing the UK economy. The second insight is that, is that the single largest element of these costs is actually, the is actually the revenue that the government loses from the transition to electric vehicles. And that's what's shown here in the yellow bars. This is what the government's losing in fuel duty um, uh, from the transition to, to, to electric vehicles because you can no longer tax the petrol that they use. And the government loses about 1.5% of GDP per year in revenue from taxing currently uh, the, the uh, petrol-driven vehicles. Third, the single most expensive expenditure item facing the government is the need to replace gas boilers in domestic residences um, and, and in commercial buildings, because these cost you know, between five and 10,000 pounds to replace. Few households have that amount of cash on hand. Helping to make that transition, we estimate the government's gonna have to provide at least some support to households to make that transition, that transition in particular, um, those, those on the lowest incomes. And finally, there are revenue opportunities that can be generated along the way to net zero, but they largely come from taxing carbon. And the problem with taxing carbon as a long-term solution to decarbonization is you're trying to get rid of carbon from your economy. So eventually your tax base disappears, but there is an opportunity to tax it um, while, people are, while people are still generating it. And that's why you see some net savings um, generated from this chart there in the blue bars um, underneath the axis. And of course, this is only one scenario for reaching net zero and arguably quite an optimistic one in which the government, uh, governments around the world act decisively in this decade to put their emissions on a steeply declining trajectory. But we also model some alternative scenarios which look at different choices around the timing of the transition, the impact of the transition on the productivity of the economy, and the fiscal choices made along the way. And on the extreme left, you can see that there is a scenario in which the transition to net zero actually saves the government money. If the investment costs of the transition are funded within, rather than on top of the government's existing investment plans, and also declining revenues from fuel duty are, replaces, are replaced by other taxes on motoring or other forms of road user charging. And on the extreme right, there's another scenario in which delays, uh, government delays taking action until the 2030s. Um, it's managed to, it, and it has to make it in a more hurried and costly way toward the end. It misses out on five years versus of carbon tax revenues. And the price of this delay is a doubling in the fiscal costs of making the transition. And in between, we illustrate the fiscal implications of a range of alternative assumptions about the impact of decarbonization on productivity and other kinds of fiscal choices. And of course, the cost of any of these scenarios for reaching net zero pale in comparison to the fiscal consequences of unmitigated climate change, which in the absence of offsetting fiscal action could push government debt well above 200% of GDP by the end of the century. And let me finish with one final area where the future might not be like the recent past, which makes solving this whole equation that much harder, and that's the area of geopolitics. One development that's provided significant relief to the public finances in the UK and other advanced economies over the past 50 years has been defense, where spending in this country fell from over 10% of GDP at the end of the Korean War in the 1950s to 2% of GDP since the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s. The steady decline in spending on the warfare state has made fiscal space for the dramatic expansion of the welfare state over the same period. Well, you have to ask yourself, with a major war on the European continent well into its second year, half of which on the Ukrainian side is being funded by a country 5,000 miles away, the United States, and a presidential election in November of next year, how firm can one be that European countries will be able to spend just the NATO minimum of 2% of GDP on our collective defense? With that, I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you.
Thanks. Thanks very much, Richard, for that um, very comprehensive and detailed uh, overview of, of the two areas that you looked at. Uh, the, the climate one in particular uh, interest to obviously me and my team. I want to give the chance to the audience to just ask one question. I'm, I'm told we cannot have more than one because we have to keep the, uh, the presentations moving. But does anyone have any quick comments or reactions or questions you want to ask Richard? <coughs> and just a reminder to please um, introduce yourself and your affiliation quickly. I'm Michael Sachs from Wits University in Johannesburg. Just a quick question, by uh, looking at different expenditures and only really considering the financing side as debt, and I assume that means you, you're holding taxation kind of constant as a share of GDP or something like that, and then you'll see, aren't you uh, uh, diverting attention from the important questions of how these things are financed? What is the balance between general taxation, user charges, Earlier, Mark Robinson, when he was talking about healthcare, was speaking about the key issue and with climate change being the balance between whether private sector or households take the burden or the uh, chancellor takes the burden, the exchequer takes the burden. So by kind of having this metric of debt, aren't you, uh, um, couldn't you, aren't you diverting attention from the question of taxation and, and financing more broadly? I, I don't think so. And I suppose for the reason that if, if we sort of posited a tax solution to this problem, we'd be sort of solving it. Um, and, and, and at the moment on existing policy settings, um, you, you do have a sustainability problem. And so we do, we do take policies as given and we try and show what happens if you just leave this system on autopilot. Um, we are we are legally prohibited from sort of positing alternative policies um, to get to you know, you know, to try to address these kind of problems, um, and so it is our role as we as it is in, in near term forecasting to take government policy as given and say this is the fiscal result that you get from that. And I think that I think the hope that analysts can have in these kind of situations is to spark a debate about those kind of questions, which is how do we ensure that we don't end up in that situation? What are the changes that we need to make on the tax policy side or on the spending policy side? Um, uh, or on the growth policy side uh, to try and try and avoid that. But I guess step step one is kind of admitting you have a problem. Um, step two is then thinking about how you how you get out of it. And, and uh, our job is to get people to step one. I'd say. Thank you. I mean that that actually um, brings up another question that I had, which you won't answer now because we don't have time. But I was wondering at the end when you were saying um, the costs of uh, of runaway climate change that would be added on top of this, you haven't yet factored in fully. So it would be great to kind of see that in the step two and three um, as well. Right, without further ado, let me move on to our second speaker, uh, Arvind Mariam. Arvind served as uh, finance secretary to the Indian Ministry of Finance from 2012 to 2014. A career civil servant, he now contributes his time and energy to so many domestic international agendas uh, and organizations. Um, I don't have really time to list all of them. But um, uh, we are delighted to have you here, Arvind, uh, to talk about the challenges of balancing the short-term fiscal pressures with long-term priorities and how these choices are shaped by the institutions uh, in India. So the floor is yours. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> First of all, I must say that I am a little daunted by seeing such a neat presentation of how uh, beautifully uh, UK's finances can be analysed. Considering uh, India is uh, 
is in that sense quite messy when we look at the fiscal uh, space there. Uh, let me just first share with you and why I'm saying this is because you will understand when I say long-term challenges uh, and uh, what exactly is the reality of India as we see today. Uh, first of all, uh, unlike what we saw earlier, in, we have a fairly good advantage on demographic uh, dividend, as we would call it, because at least until 2055-56, uh, India will uh, have uh, a, a you know advantage in terms of demography, and it will peak around 2041. Uh, when the share of working population, which is 29 to 50, 20 to 59, is expected to 59% of the total population. So there, uh, I guess we would still have a situation where the number of persons who will come into the tax uh, net uh, will continue to grow uh, for quite a substantial uh, period of time. But at the same time, we also have the other challenges, um, uh, starting with very large number of poor uh, and these poor are vulnerable and they're very vulnerable to shocks uh, and therefore anything when when you look at anything very long term uh, there you can never uh, take your eye away from the fact that it need, the what is immediate and now needs to be addressed also all the time pandemic sh uh, showed that to us you would have seen on television uh, one of the largest migrations after partition of the subcontinent happening during the pandemic of the informal sector labor, uh, which go, you know kind of moves in India from one place to the other looking for employment or livelihoods. And then we have also the problem of illiteracy, poor health care, poor access to water, uh, basic infrastructure. Uh, so there is this huge a uh, very large canvas that uh, when the finance ministry is looking at its fiscal policy, if it is looking at its budgeting, etc., it is not a very neat uh, uh, kind of a chart that we see at, in any given year because of these many problems that we are seeing there. Of course, in India, we also have the other problem, which is the problem of rising expectations and that expectations are always above uh, ahead of the curve in whatever the government may achieve in terms of developmental goals or in terms of uh, providing services and uh, uh, you know bringing the living standard of people higher the expectations are always ahead of that and so there are these millions of revolutions waiting to happen in different parts of the country which is very very diverse uh, where the development has been asymmetrical, so there are regional imbalances. And so the immediacy of providing that uh, small little attention uh, through fiscal stimulation uh, is uh, becomes a very critical part of the planning in the finance ministry every time, every year that we are looking at the budget. Having said that, I would like to also uh, place on record the fact that over, if you look at the long period of time, the trajectory in terms of how budgeting will be done, or how macroeconomic stability will be maintained, how different parameters will be addressed, has been fairly constant and stable. Uh, in terms of um, 
if you look at in terms of debt management, for instance, whereas our internal debt has grown, it is almost 80% of the GDP, our external debt has been fairly low at about 20%, 22% of the GDP, which means that uh, we, uh, we have never had this issue of a default in terms of a commitment uh, which we have made uh, or taken the debt. So uh, they, the, these things have been managed fairly well. And uh, despite one uh, very critical factor, which is our dependence on external um, uh, externalities is very high. For instance, we import most of our crude oil and our dependence on import of crude oil is very high. And therefore, when the price volatility in, in crude oil space always impacts the budgets and therefore long-term uh, planning in terms of expenditures becomes a bit difficult. It, this is true for most commodities that we are importing. And uh, one of the things that India has done, uh, which also has a cost, carrying cost, is the, uh, the uh, uh, a very large buffer stocks that we have created in terms of food to be able to feed 1.2 billion people in case of any crisis of any kind becomes completely impossible. And therefore we, or we keep a buffer stock of 20 to 25 million tons of food grain, uh, which is available at all points to time within the country. There is a carrying cost to it. And uh, very often during our conversations with IMF, uh, when they come for uh, consultations with us, they have pointed out it's such a wasteful <laughs> expenditure, but we do believe that no country in the world has the capacity to feed India uh, if, if we were to uh, depend on that. And therefore, this has been a big issue. So uh, have now, while we are looking at all this, I think in terms of long-term challenges that we have had to look at, one has been entrenched poverty, which has been quite high. And uh, there have been some dramatic changes in that, uh, where uh, in 2005, we brought in, for instance, uh, uh, National Rural Employment Guarantee Act. Now, this is uh, actually this is a charge on the Consolidated Fund of India because uh, it is entitlement, it's entitled expenditure. And therefore, uh, if somebody demands work, government cannot deny it on account of the fact that it is not provided in the budget. So you have to provide that uh, in the rural areas. And initially, there had been a huge amount of criticism. I do remember in my conversations when we had uh, multilaterals or international organizations coming and discussing that they thought it was a terribly bad idea for creating such a charge on the uh, on a already fragile uh, uh, financial uh, uh, architecture of this of the country but we saw that it actually became quite a powerful tool in doing two things one addressing the issue of uh, inequality to an extent because uh the the entitlement to a the employment in the rural areas immediately uh, created a bargaining power in the hands of the unskilled uh, and uh, semi-skilled rural labor which in turn then across the economy raised the wages for them which had been abysmally low over a long period of time 
And so between 2005 and 2015, uh, uh, India brought about 270 million people out of poverty, which was a very fast compression of poverty uh, uh, in, in the, in, within a 10-year period of time, uh, which in turn had other problems, which created other problems, demand side problems, but, uh, uh, but nevertheless, this did happen. So these, this again, these, all these had to be factored into uh, the budgeting process, to, had to be provided for. Of course, we did see one thing, which is between, uh, by 2009-10, the uh, demand on the budget had started decreasing because the wages across the board in the country had increased. And therefore, less and less people were demanding work from the government. So it was self-limiting to that extent. Uh, we have had other similar kind of entitlements like right to education in, in Rajasthan with the state where I come from. Uh, very recently, we have enacted right to health, which means that everybody has an entitlement to health and health services, health care has become completely free for people. Once again, the questions are being asked today uh, whether a, a country must or a state of Rajasthan's uh, size should have provided a free medical care to everybody because there's a cost to it. It's a charge on the budget. But in the finance or the planning side, we also see that it increases, increases productivity because more people are able to access. And we have also seen that a very large number of people fall off the margins or fall back into poverty because of the cost of medical care. And therefore, this in, in turn also provides them surplus in their hand to spend. And there is a kind of a demand push in an economy which at the moment has uh, 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 demand has almost collapsed. So, I, so these are some of the challenges that uh, one continues to see. And uh, so in India, what had happened was that we had created this knowing that kind of short term challenges all the time uh, finance ministries face. We also had a planning commission at one point of time, and the planning commission used to do long term plans, uh, annual plans, five year plans, perspective plans and so on, uh, which gave the direction uh, of uh, development and which required certain amount of uh, expenditure to be met. And uh, because of these pressures uh, of uh, contingency and also political pressures because of the cycle of elections that we have, there was also certain principles that started getting incorporated in the pro planning process because in 2006, uh, six or seven, six I think, uh, the finance, uh, finance Ministry and Planning Commission decided the principle that the gross capital formation in uh, the economy must be factored into the kind of budget expenditures that are done. So capital expenditure needed to rise, and the principle was that uh, the uh, unless the capital expenditure equals uh, the uh, GDP growth, uh, the sustaining that growth momentum will be difficult. And therefore, in all the ministries were then uh, asked to prepare budgets where they would clearly show that capital expenditure was higher, going higher. And these principles were embedded in the, in the process. Similarly, the one point which was raised in the last earlier session 
about private investment yesterday also uh, in the the workshop we were saying there was this discussion that the government should uh, you know the public expenditure should be reduced and wherever private investment can or expenditure can come in once again in 2005 6 uh, it was decided that in all infrastructure uh, which had some commercial uh, uh, you know, uh, aspect to it, for instance, roads where you could raise tolls or ports or airports, etc. Public-private partnership should become the mode of execution and therefore private investment should be brought in. Uh, uh, so this uh, public, invest, uh, public expenditure should uh, be leveraged to attract private investment. And a very huge number of projects then went into that mode for almost six, seven years, that became the principal, uh, principal mode of uh, infrastructure development in key sectors in India. So these were the kind of uh, policy push which came into, uh, into the entire government expenditure management, uh, uh, you know, and this was adhered to while meeting all the contingencies which came in between, whether it was uh, uh, you know, uh, whether it was uh, drought, there was failure of monsoon, or there was some other disaster which would happen, uh, or political pressures for different kind of uh, projects to be undertaken. But these were long term trends were continued. So in India, we have seen that while you will have all these messy kind of expenditures coming in off and on, but the long term trajectory of managing managing the public finance in a particular manner. Uh, which is uh, which uh, which uh, is uh, necessary for stability fiscal stability has been followed and uh, uh, one other thing which i would like to um, uh, say here is that in a globalized economy uh, much of the domestic uh, fiscal uh, management also is impacted by global uh, you know uh, global developments for instance 2008 meltdown when it happened economic crisis which happened uh, it was no other than imf which nudged along with g20 and others for fiscal stimulation uh, stimulus to be put in place uh, for uh, for keeping the economies afloat and in india we had three fiscal uh, stimulus packages which were announced of course uh, to our uh, to our uh, later we realized that perhaps three were not required and at, at, at the end of it we ended up with very toxic inflation because fiscal deficits had gone up very high but the fact is that the prescriptions at different points of time by institutions which we were talking about the ones which come in uh, whether it is IMF or other institutions which come in or whether it is OECD and others who provide a lot of advice at different points of time. I think much of one of the things in my experience I have seen is that the principles or even the theory of fiscal uh, fiscal management changes according to how the global situation is. And much of it is driven by or, or the underlying it is the principles that would be helpful to the advanced economies. And as for emerging market economies, we have discovered this very clearly, that in 2008, when there was a crisis, IMF put up a $500 billion uh, fund 
to help Italy, Spain, and other countries. But in 2000, uh, when the 2013, 12, 13, 14 period, when there was a huge amount of crisis happening in emerging market economies, they uh, the these countries were told to put their house to order then that that it was not the, the uh, responsibility of the international community to help them now this is this is an experience we see again and again and therefore one problem that we see with international organizations is that they are very much designed when we are talking of credit rating agencies i'll shortly come to that part also this is a problem that we are seeing uh, which needs to be done now presently uh, what we are looking at is the biggest challenge before uh, India, as it would be for everyone else, I guess, is how to do climate finance, and which is becoming a major issue. Now, one big problem is, although in, in our presidency of G20, uh, N.K. Singh and Larry Summers uh, committee was formed, and they have given recommendations on reform of MDBs. Uh, the idea is that the uh, MDB's reforms will permit these institutions uh, to be able to raise more resources to lend to countries. But this is just one part of the equation uh, uh, because the estimation is that there's a global investment gap of about $4 trillion, which needs to be met. and. Uh, I don't know how much the MDBs together put together, even if they triple their lending or uh, start lending four times, we'll be able to fill this gap, which is emerging. But more critically than that, I think the problem which we are not being able to look at is entire effort for uh, climate finance is on the side of debt. And therefore, uh, whether it is uh, you know uh, green uh, green bonds, transition bonds, disaster bonds, resilience bonds, you have all kind of bonds. I mean, very nice bonds, and uh, <laughs> and everyone is promoting them. But the question is, who will borrow them? Now, look at India. Uh, our uh, uh, public debt is or is presently uh, about eighty four percent of the GDP. Our fiscal deficit, combined fiscal deficit of states and the center together is close to 12% of the GDP. Now, this is not sustainable. So how much can we borrow uh, from the uh, from anywhere? I mean, from the market, from after ultimately somebody has to repay this loan and who? how would we repay this loan? I mean, this that capacity does not exist. Uh, India itself has a, uh, a financing gap of $500 billion a year if we want to reach uh, our NDCs at the net zero in 2070. This is a kind of investment that would be required. Uh, so borrowing is not that much of an option. We don't have too much flexibility in terms of, uh, of uh, taxation, uh, because even if we increase our taxation uh, significantly, it will fall much short of the kind of resource which is required. Uh, and then uh, the other part which I find consistently being discussed is uh, we must crowd in private investment. Well, very, uh, I mean, I, my understanding is that the capacity of the private sector to borrow also is limited because private sector has to borrow on their balance sheets. 
and they have already a lot of uh, the balance sheets are stretched balance sheets so there is a limit to how much the private sector can bring in so in my opinion and what we have been working on and we are trying to push for is a completely re relook at the fiscal financial framework global financial framework where today we look at finance only as public finance and private finance and we have seen that even if it is a public infrastructure which is being uh, uh, constructed through private finance the finance private finance is still designated as private finance and therefore it is subject to the the balance sheet of the company and the risks associated with it are all risks which are associated with that company's profile uh, whereas the actual construction maintenance is of the of public infrastructure and part of the risk then falls on the sovereign so therefore this this risk sharing between sovereign and is not factored it factor in either by credit rating agencies nor by uh, uh, in uh, institutions like the world bank for instance so if the world bank has to lend it will lend to a sovereign except for the ifc window for the commercial lending but that is a commercial lending to the private so there is limit on both sides and therefore this whole concept of looking at financing of public infrastructure needs a relook same thing is true with the credit rating agencies, which we were discussing in the last session too. It's just bias is, of course, one big issue, but more than bias, I think it's their methodology, the way they look at it and how for if you look at an infrastructure project, it may be a $3 billion project, which is a public project. Underlying is a public infrastructure. But that, when it is being implemented by a private sec uh, sector, uh, a private uh, entity, falls into an SPV which has no balance sheet, because it's a standalone project, and therefore it will never get uh, a rating which is above uh, the investment rating, or the rating which the private sector may be able to get on uh, the basis of its balance sheet. And therefore, there again is a problem of the risk premium, how much more expensive the debt will be for that. So I think we need also to begin to look at uh, instruments uh, which are uh, which can uh, which can direct capital market uh, funds into public infrastructure. In India, we tried this experiment in 2012-13, which has now grown very big, which is uh, we uh, which is this uh, called infrastructure investment trusts and these infrastructure investment trusts are where you uh, you transfer uh, a uh, fully constructed in, uh, infrastructure asset which is revenue earning asset and based on the future earning calcul estimation of the future earning of uh, the asset uh, units are issued and listed in the stock exchange and therefore you get capital market funds in it for the life cycle of the project and after 30 years, for instance, if it's a public road, after 30 years, it comes back to the uh, public uh, sector. Then the public sector entity, who is the sponsor of that, will pay to the unit holders the market price of that day's and then redeem the units. Uh, this is working very well now in India. We have several very large projects which have gone into it. But I think we need to begin to look at it internationally to be able to have these instruments which will divert uh, that into infrastructure. So the green financing, 
I think requires a serious relook from what we have today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Arvind. Thank you. That was a very far reaching um, set of observations, starting with kind of some of the poverty challenges, both as a short term and long term challenge, which I thought was a very interesting perspective. Some of the lessons learned can be um, also applied to climate change because we keep thinking of it as a long term challenge, but actually some of the pressing climate impacts, such as the extreme weather events, the slow onset events are things that we are starting to deal with. Um, and then also your observations on the kind of lessons learned from the planning commission uh, and uh, and also the discussion around changing the international financial architecture to make it more fit for purpose for the kind of financing we need for these projects is um, absolutely very forefront of everyone's minds and ODI is also doing a lot of work on that I'm sure you know as well. Um, so any quick feedback or questions? Oh, there's one pressing question over there. We can take one before we move on to our third panelist. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's clearly articulated. Uh, it's clearly uh, I, I'm Lekha Chakraborty. I'm working with the Ministry of Finance Research Institute in India. And uh, my question, sir, you have clearly articulated that India has gone into the accommodative fiscal policy by keeping the narrative that we can afford to have high fiscal deficit and debt if it is linked to strengthening the capex and also to uh, reduce the output gaps. But it's a controversial thing because we don't know what's the output gap and the potential output. So this is a clear narrative. But given the point you mentioned about the widening inequalities, uh, we are not giving much attention to the needed employer of last resort, the social infrastructure policies. So this will, as you rightly pointed out, this is, this is going to uh, you know, create that growth-oriented fiscal policy, which is now focusing in India into trouble unless we focus more on the human or the financing human development aspects. So in this case, while re-articulating the fiscal rules, should we be focusing more on the debt servicing to the revenue receipts because uh, monetary policy is going hawkish, public debt management is becoming tough. So should we be uh, you know, going away with these thresholds and focusing more on the interest payments to the revenue receipts, That whether that's mounting, and we, we just focus on our primary deficit, but not on the macro debt. Because in morning, Rathen also articulated that fiscal space for what? So when we re-articulate the policies, thank you. So I think you have raised a, a very important point, something that uh, you write also, I've read, you have been writing about this. Uh, so the, what you're saying is absolutely correct. And, but this you must see uh, from what I had said earlier too, that when you, if you look at here and now, it appears the manner in which you're looking at it. But there has been a, a method to this madness, if I may use that term, in terms of how finance ministries look at long-term trajectories. So you will see broadly, uh, it is herded in. For instance, when fiscal deficit went very high in 2011-12, Kelkar committee came in and they gave a fiscal glide path for consolidation uh, to bring it down to 3%. Of course, un unfortunately, in 2015-14-15, it was given up for different reasons, but uh, but that uh, that 
uh, the uh, threshold already is there that you ca you have to bring it down. Uh, now, because of pandemic, suddenly there has been some justification and some morality to higher deficits, which is all over the world. But I think it ultimately it has to come down. You have to bring it down. But the second challenge which you have raised is more critical to us, which is inequality. And rising inequalities are the ones which, when I was talking of the million revolutions, I think that's the most potent revolution in terms of social economy, which can then completely break down anything in it, uh, that you can plan as a long-term thing. And that inequality needs to be addressed. There is no question about that. And that inequality can be addressed only by one, uh, one manner. And therefore, that conversation is already happening, which is minimum incomes, um, uh, you know, universal, minimum universal income and so on. That conversation is already on. I mean, in some places, in some form or the other, it is being implemented. But uh, I think that is going to be the next key challenge, uh, how to create that basic minimum income which everyone receives uh, so that the, the the inequalities do not rise in the same manner as they are rising at the moment in India, which is a big problem. I think it's also a matter of perspective. I think it whether it's in England or in US or anywhere, the labor and the conservative kind of looking at the economy. I mean, how do you see that? I In India too, we, I think we are moving in those two ideological situations in economic ideological situations, whether we are looking at supply side push or demand side push. And I think that is something that that conversation must continue. Thank you very much. Lots of food for thought for the discussion part of um, this session as well. Just to remind those watching online, please do remember to, to um, send any questions that you have for us when we come to the Q&A session later. But uh, now let's move on to our third panelist, Rosamund Edwards. Uh, like Arvind, Rosamund served as the financial secretary uh, for the finance ministry of the island of Dominica in the Caribbean. And also like Arvind, she's now sharing her skills and experience more widely uh, recently in the office of the executive director at, uh, at the IMF and previously on the boards of the Caribbean Development Bank, the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank and the Eastern Caribbean Asset Management Corporation. Rosamund, we've asked you to speak today to us on the relevance of resilience and adaptation strategies in particular, and I think some of the uh, points that Arvin made earlier around the kind of debt um, and financing of um, sort of some of those challenges in the aftermath in vulnerable countries uh, that such as Dominica is obviously very front and center of in your mind. So over to you, please. Good afternoon and thank you very much. And thanks to those organizers forum and for allowing me to share the experiences of, the, of Dominica and to be part of this panel. For the benefit of those who don't know, the Commonwealth of Dominica referred to as Dominica and not to be confused with the Dominican Republic is a 289 square mile island in the Caribbean located between the French islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe and in the center of the Caribbean chain of islands. Dominica experiences several hazards it is volcanic in nature and boasts of several active volcanoes. The mountains increase the risk of heavy rainfall and consequently land slippage is a common occurrence. It is susceptible to earthquakes, the most recent one being, or major one being in November 2004 and there have been several other small ones since then. And by virtue of its location, it sits right in the track of tropical weather systems and even when it's not receiving a direct hit, 
it's likely to be affected by more storms coming through the Atlantic. The records show that up to 2017, Dominica seemed to have been exposed to a significant tropical weather system every two years, some of which make it to the international news, some don't, but all very costly and impacting the lives of the citizens. Hopefully with this background, you will understand the challenges from the natural disasters and most of the fiscal challenges created from climate-related events, which could occur year-round, including the six months of the Atlantic hurricane season. This has prompted the government of Dominica to make resilience building at its center of its development strategy. More generally, the entire Caribbean, climate change has both short-term and long-term risk and solutions are needed to address both types. Countries need to take steps to adapt and build resilience, such as improved infrastructure, and to guard against disruption caused by extreme weather events and to minimize the short-term risks. In parallel, implementing strategies such as pursuing a low carbon economy and investing in renewable energy is essential to mitigate the long-term risks associated with climate change. Building resilience to climate impacts does not mean that the country will not feel or experience the climatic events, but it means for us that despite being affected, the recovery should be faster after an event. Dominica has learned several lessons along the way, notably in the wake of the passage of Tropical Storm Erica in 2015 and Hurricane Maria in 2017. Hurricane Maria being a category five hurricane. I will share these lessons with you as these have shaped the blueprint for building resilience and tailoring public finance management to, really, to meet the resilience objective. The first lesson is that the fiscal framework must leave room to build fiscal buffers and to build savings in order to respond quickly after an event. Donor resources take time to be dispersed and without country funds, recovery takes longer. So the first lesson, countries must build fiscal resilience. Countries like Dominica with high vulnerability to climate events have racked up significant debt. You may be aware that several countries in the Caribbean are listed as having the highest debt levels globally, and consequently some of the highest debt servicing costs. Much of that debt has been accumulated over a period of time as countries have been forced to borrow to finance post-climate um, events. The tax base is also limited, a point made by, by the previous speaker. Even in the most efficient tax system, revenue collection is inadequate to meet the development needs and generate savings, to meet the cost of the short-term risk as well as the long-term risk. And of course, there are costs associated with meeting the SDGs, and I use the SDGs largely because it encompasses all of the social issues that must be addressed. And a large part of government's budget goes towards wages and salaries and to social transfers, whether it's in terms of, of direct support, housing, education, health. So the cost of the short-term needs often crowd out building savings and investing in resilience ex ante. The urgency of repairing infrastructure could affect quality and the long-term risk, very often government must take the first step. For example, investment in renewable energy requires government to do the exploration 
And if that is not success, successful, that cost is borne by the state. So there is a delicate balance to be struck between managing the short-term and long-term risk of climate, climate impacts um, and how that applies to the fiscal situation. The base of fiscal resilience is a strong and robust fiscal framework that defines clear fiscal targets, that prescribes how fiscal policy balances the trade-offs between short-term and medium to long-term spending priorities and two-year savings. Strong fiscal resilience targeted at climate resilience should include more than one instrument. It could be savings or a vulnerability fund. It could include insurance. In the Caribbean, we have what is called the catastrophe risk insurance facility. Or it could be in the form of climate sensitive debt instruments that can delay or postpone or eliminate debt servicing when there is a disaster. In the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Maria and Tropical Storm Erica, it was the ability of government savings and disbursements from the insurance which financed immediate cleanup and got the country back open. The second lesson is that investment in resilient infrastructure is better ex ante. The experience is that it will cost more upfront to reinforce construction, for example, but the expectation is that less damage is likely. Exante investments will increase the cost of public sector um, investment in the short run, but are expected to have less impact on the budget in the long term. The challenge there is where is the financing to come from to meet those upfront costs associated um, in resilience upfront exante. This makes the case, of course, for the availability of financing. It is true that climate financing should be made or could be made available. But the experience again is that for small island development states, access to climate funds has been limited and the capacity required to draw down those funds have been very challenging. It is a major concern for the region and for several small states that access to adequate concessional and grant financing for ex-ante investments um, to build resilience is a major challenge. The third lesson is that resilience should be widespread. It means having resilient communities, communities that can continue to operate and function after a climatic event, even and or until access, they can gain access to central government services. That is particularly true in the case of Dominica, which is a mountainous country where communities can be very well isolated for several days, as, as we've seen in several of the events that we've had. However, investment in resilient infrastructure helps create those resilient communities and could include construction of community health facilities, resilient housing, food distribu distribution arrangements, and potable water systems. It takes into consideration the social support that citizens will need in the aftermath of a climatic event. Again, the financing needs there are, are major um, and is a charge on the state. Again, the balance between short-term and long-term to have this in place, those investments must be made in the short-term. The fourth lesson is knowing where to access capacity. Limited capacity is one of the traits of small states. 
I define capacity here to include the human capacity, people, as well as physical heavy equipment and tools. It is unlikely that all of these will be readily available, but a country must know how to access these and to plan for the future by investing in training to acquire the skills needed to plan for and respond to climatic events. To address the human capacity deficiencies, and in addition to ongoing training, it is sometimes necessary, as we discovered, to have a separate agency established to drive and focus on implementation of recovery projects after a major event, and to have these services subsumed into central government to continue the planning process and to facilitate continued ex-ante investments. These lessons now form the drivers of development plans and specifically climate change adaptation plans for Dominica. A climate resilient plan, an adaptation plan, sometimes they go by various names, should provide guidelines for setting investment policies, identify the capacity needed to operationalize those plans, and importantly, these plans must be costed. Here, multilateral institutions like the fund, the bank, um, have a role in assisting small development states without that capacity to prepare such costings. These costings are what will assist countries in negotiating finance and to attempt to raise uh, whatever funds are necessary, whether from specific trust funds or the donor community more widely to finance these activities. However, I know that the cost of adaptation for climate change cannot be borne by the, by the public sector alone. One of, uh, of the, the most obvious examples in, is investment in renewable energy, um, where the private sector and the public sector can cooperate. You would have noticed that I have come somewhat full circle, starting with the necessity of having a strong fiscal framework and coming around to the annual budget. The budget is the instrument through which climate plans can be implemented. It is a tool that the government has to use to implement the plans. In that regard, there are some simple PFM practices that are basic, but that are important to ensuring that the combined goals of fiscal sustainability and building climate resilience can be achieved. One is to establish and measure key fiscal targets. So for some, it could be the primary balance, for some, it could be the debt to GDP ratio, but there has to be something that anchors the fiscal, the macro, the macro fiscal situation. And in turn, to design clear guidance in terms of data collection and the measurement for the achievement of these targets. Secondly, introducing revenue measures and or measures to improve efficiency in revenue collection. Given the small base, the small tax base, Revenue collection must be efficient so that at least there is some financing, local financing, that can meet government's contribution to investment, even where it receives donor financing, and to meet some of the basic day-to-day -day, um, expenditure of government. Three, establishing and providing clear guidance on the preparation of the annual budget to ensure fiscal goals are met. That includes, in particular, um, the rules in regard to the, to the capital program, the public sector investment program, to ensure that projects meet the resilience objectives, whether it's in terms of adaptation or mitigation. Um, and it could also be on the, in terms of meeting the short-term risk, such standards as building codes to be updated, um, land 
land zoning to ensure that buildings are built in the correct places and that roads are cut in the right areas. Next, the introduction of cash management, which ensures that payments are planned, that payments are fluid and do not delay implementation of capital projects. And lastly, but not least by any chance, targeting of social assistance to reduce leakages that could compromise the achievement of fiscal targets, but providing for the vulnerable. Of course, these plans can be very easily derailed and must be reset over and over. The pandemic taught us that even with the best of plans, a quick, quick shift had to, had to be made. And the frequency with which um, small states, Dominica as an example, can be hit by climatic events means that it has to be agile. The fiscal framework must be sufficiently agile that it can incorporate when those changes have to be made and, and adjusted to meet the, the emergency needs. I will stop here for now and give you an opportunity for questions. I thank you and respond to any clarifications that may be required. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Rosamond. Really fascinating to hear from the experience of Dominica. Uh, and I think lots of lessons learned from many other countries because you've been facing these natural hazards more and more frequently for years and, and many other countries are going to be in the same position. So really interesting to hear about you focusing on the, the importance of the robust fiscal frameworks uh, and budgets, the, the discussion around kind of debt and having to service this debt and the burden uh, on countries such as yourselves. Um, and also I, I, uh, I thought it was really interesting interesting that you discussed the trade-offs between short-term and long-term priorities because uh, you know coupled with the fact that you know as you said cost um, is actually some of these costs are much less ex-ante than they would be exposed uh, so that's definitely something that must be taken into account again going back to what we were discussing in the beginning how do you then um, factor in these costs to the planning and what those costs would be if you uh, did this kind of resilience and adaptation before these events strike. So really lots of lessons learned for everybody uh, here and, and beyond. So let me uh, open up to questions with that. Any quick questions to Rosamond in, in terms of her um, presentation so far? Uh, and otherwise kind of questions more broadly to the panel. Maybe we can take a few questions and give the panel a chance to respond. This gentleman in the front row. Please remember to introduce yourself. Hi, uh, I'm Ollie Bartram, a senior economist at the Institute for Government here in the UK. <clears throat> I wanted to kind of uh, draw a bit of a connection between what we just heard uh, Rosamond speak about, about the importance of the budget process in addressing long-term challenges here, and the excellent work that Richard's team produces on the longer term here. Despite his excellent work, it often feels as though the UK government doesn't quite manage to focus on the long term and uh, I think it might be to do with the fact that the analysis is not part of the budgeting process we have the budget process that looks at the next few years and then in between that we get the excellent report that terrifies everyone but then we sort of drift into the next budgeting process and think about the next few years and then get a little bit more terrified is that, that that's the cycle that we're on is there any way that we can 
join the two up a little bit more together so that these longer term considerations are really an intrinsic part of the budget process. Thanks. Question. Let's take a couple of other questions. One over there. Hi, I'm Rashad from Wits uh, uh, University in Johannesburg. Richard, question for you. Um, when the UK moved uh, the forecasting to the OBR to depoliticize the process, uh, and you produce a, an evaluation of the accuracy of your uh, forecast every two years, every three years, if I recall. Um, have you overcome um, with this uh, arrangement the depoliticized um, process? Because uh, a lot of fiscal slippage occurs because of either political intervention or incapacity or, or limited capacity in different uh, countries. So would you say like the, the, the area from, from uh, poor forecasts is overcome now, uh, removing the process out of the direct hands of the executive. And so fiscal slippage is now purely exogenous or purely um, political and, and uh, political economy as opposed to purely a technical uh, fault right now. So I'd like your thoughts on that in contrast like the US with the CBO and the president's uh, budget uh, go head to head. Thank you. Thank you. Any other questions from the room? the Caribbean or India's priorities? Otherwise, we can kick off with those two questions to you. <laughs> uh, two very good questions. I, on the first one, I, these long-term fiscal projections and risk reports are sort of new fiscal technology. So I think you've got to give them a little while for the system to get used to them and, and think about how to digest them. I mean, in some ways, I think it's a surprise that Governments have actually faced up to some of these long-term challenges. In that, in this country, we've raised the state pension age on a number of occasions and have a sort of escalator for it to rise in line with rising life expectancy. Other countries around the world have also raised their state pension ages. You know, the, the economic and fiscal benefits from that come much beyond a sort of given budget rise. And very few finance ministers get immediate benefits from making those kind of difficult choices. But actually, people are facing up to those facts that people are living longer. Um, they are, they are at least in the in their uh, early early years uh, having healthier life expectancy and so can spend longer on employment. So I think in some ways governments are actually facing up to longer term issues. I, I think the other area on the risk side, an area where OBR reports highlighted uh, sort of vulnerability for the UK was in the share of inflation linked debt that we had in the portfolio because it's a sort of double whammy in the sense that when inflation goes up, you know, both the value of the debt goes up with inflation plus if interest rates rise on top of that, you get the cost of the higher nominal interest. And so the OBR drew attention to that several risk reports ago, and then the government responded by saying it was going to try and rein in the growth, uh, at least um, in that, that part of the debt portfolio. So I think you do see on occasion um, analysis feeding back into policy responses. I think you also have to give Treasury and other finance ministries a bit of a break. You know, they've been managing two very big crises over the last few years, at least in Europe, with the pandemic and then the energy crisis. So just getting through those is probably the most important area they can be focusing their attention so that they don't do longer term damage. Um, to the economy, but I think getting the feedback loop between analysis and, and policy is, is is still a work in progress, um, I would say. Um, and I guess in terms of contracting out the forecast to an independent body, you know, does it lead to less biased uh, and or, or more accurate forecasts? I think we do, as as you said, we do do a report um, once a year looking back at our forecasting record. We also just put out uh, for those of you who take interest in these things. A much a much longer report looking back at our whole forecasting record since we were set up in 2010 and what it what it illustrates is i think two interesting things i mean it, it says that we still get it wrong i mean you know we don't we don't have a crystal ball any more than people in the treasury um had had one before 2010 
um, the, the two big factors that have driven, uh, you know, our forecast errors are lower than those of the treasuries and they're, and they're less biased um, in the optimistic direction. So I think there's been some technical improvement to taking the forecast out of the treasury. You know, we've still made errors. Uh, I think it's interesting to look at the two biggest sources of error we've made in forecasting were um, in, in the early years after the financial crisis, we were, we, were, we were subject to the same kind of optimist, optimism bias as the rest of the economics profession. We thought the growth was gonna to return to its pre-financial crisis level. It just hasn't. Um, and it took a while for us to adjust down our long-term assumption about productivity growth. That was what drove forecasting biases in the early years for us. More recently, it's actually been the fact that we have to take government policy as stated, and in particular government policy about the path of public spending. And, and, what, what's, and government has tended to give us very conservative assumptions to use about the path of public spending beyond uh, the sort of what is it the sort of detailed budget horizon and, and in practice what happens is when, when it comes time for government to allocate out that spending between departments they revise up the total and that means we end up that we end up borrowing more than you know what a given set of five-year projections would suggest so i'd say um you know uh, incentives adapt to the systems that you create um, and if you create a system which says you've got to get the deficit under control in five years time governments tend to have very optimistic views about where they can get public spending in five years other questions one over here and another one there please thanks reminder if you want to send your questions we're happy to ask them to our panelists Hi, um, I'm Carl Long from ODI. Uh, thanks to all three speakers, that was wonderful. Um, my question is for Rosamond, um, but I, I wouldn't mind hearing from both Richard and Arvind on this as well, because I think um, Arvind in particular has kind of touched on it. Um, with regard to climate finance, what, what are the big issues in terms of accessing climate finance kind of on the countryside? and then on the side of the actual institutions that are supposed to be doing the lending. Yeah, thanks for that. A lot of it is capacity. capacity. Uh, I'm Sam Moon, um, independent consultant, but former ODIA. Um, this is sort of uh, just a bit more maybe fun. Um, uh, in the context of don't let a good crisis go to waste, what what opportunities would you each see that that come out of these crises? We're looking at sort of we're, we're sort of talking about this happening on a periodic basis. That there's these kinds of crises. So, what 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 have you got in mind for 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 what could be taken advantage of in those opportunities? One more question here, Frederick. Alex, do you have the mic, Frederick? <laughs> Frederick. Thank you. I'd like to focus on the case of India. It was very interesting to, to hear uh, the number of policies, measure and focus. Um, it seemed that the, the, the focus on inequality is, is really large, uh, understandingly. But the climate finance, you, you sort of glossed over saying this is a big question, how is it going to be financed, neither public nor private, so maybe new instruments. Is it, is it um, a sign that maybe the, the climate crisis is, is not seen as salient maybe in India than, and elsewhere? Or is it that the short-term short uh, needs to respond to the, the population, being fed and, and providing social protection makes planning long-term very hard indeed? 
let's uh, go ahead with first the question to uh, Rosamund on Lion's Hokao's question on the climate finance and access to climate finance. Yes, so um, there are several, several concerns um, with gaining access. One is that the small states in general have difficulty with access to private capital markets. Traditionally, most of, of the small states, Dominica and several of the Caribbean countries, they would have benefited from um, development finance from multilateral and multilateral institutions. So you find they have very little experience and little access to, to private capital markets, definitely not the domestic markets. And the cost of pursuing this um, internationally almost makes the process redundant. Secondly, the more, um, the, the more common climate funds like the GEF, for example, the procedures are extremely complex. It requires uh, a whole bureaucracy and several stages and phases that most countries have complained about um, and uh, the, the time that it takes um, also poses a major, a major challenge. And then you have concerns sometimes with the size of the financing. So although for the country, the size is significant, um, international institutions, and if there is an attempt to raise any private financing, suggests that the amounts are still too small for the effort that must be made. From the side of the, the, the agency providing the finance, it is usually the, the conditionalities that they, they impose, which are sometimes onerous, um, maybe not necessarily in line with, with what the country's objectives are, and likely to compromise some of the other policies they have. So, um, we hear frequently that countries are very careful not to change policies that affect vulnerable groups. And so they would shy away from any conditionality that suggests any reduction in financing by the government for, for vulnerable groups. Um, but I believe by and large, the constraints is on the, on the countryside and the ability to go through the procedures in a timely manner to, to draw down the funds that are available. There are also some constraints in, in terms of the designs of the projects, but even where those projects are well designed, um, there, there are challenges. Um, I should add too, regarding private financing, sometimes the returns are, uh, that are expected from the private finance um, source, it's not in line with the objectives that, that the government would want to do. You see it, for example, in renewable energy, where the return one that is wanted by a, a, private, um, a private firm or private financier would compromise, say, the rate of electricity that is to be sold. Uh, government is not going to go ahead with an engagement of that nature. I'll stop it, that's Let's take next Frederick's question on India's priorities, given the, the, you know, the continuous challenges with poverty and the exacerbation on inequalities. Is climate sufficiently uh, front of everyone's minds? Maybe not. 
No, that's not true, actually, because much of it is interlinked, too, because if you have, uh, we have now a lot of uh, issues with um, the uh, recurring disasters which are happening on account of climate change. So it is not as if, and that also then induces more poverty. So it's not uh, that there is, it's not on top of anybody's or everybody's mind. We have already got very large targets that we have put uh, in terms of energy transition and uh, and uh, move to uh, electric vehicles and so on, we are, I mean there is a stated policy. I don't think anywhere in the world this kind of a policy exists that all diesel vehicles which are more than ten years old are now no longer allowed to ply in major metropolitan cities. And uh, so therefore, diesel is being phased. Uh, vehicles are being so there is a lot of emphasis on. Uh, issues relating to climate change. But the question which I raised was not in terms of what we can do in small segments, but when you look at the totality of it. So if you are talking of net zero, it will not happen because I'm going to invest more in solar energy and less in other kind of energy. It will not, in totality, it will not result in that because there's a huge effort that needs to go into it. The entire uh, infrastructure, cons uh, construction of infrastructure, and also design of services, etc., has uh, everything has to change. Now, if that is so, in which case, uh, you, I mean, now the, the solar energy, we have about 50 gigawatts uh, of energy already, uh, solar energy and uh, wind energy have come, and it is increasing very rapidly all the time. But then it requires huge amount of uh, uh, transition in the transmission lines, they have to be redesigned and there's a huge, you know, cost to that. So the point is, where does this money come from? And the question that you're raising, it's not that we are not in India, we have no concern. Our concern is that we don't see that concern globally. That there is a lot of conversation everybody does, there are a lot of announcement and pronouncements people do. But look at the green fund that they had announced about 15 years ago in in the which World Bank was to administer. What's the size of that? I mean, so nobody's putting the money where their mouth is, and that is the problem I we see globally. So I mean, India is not a great uh, financial player in the global economy. I mean, we don't ever claim to say we are the richest country in the world, and therefore we can finance anything and everything for ourselves and others. But the question is that this this understanding has to be across the board and we don't see it. So I, my angst is not in, on account of the fact that in India we are not concerned or aware of it. We are very concerned and very aware of it because it impacts us. And where you have a higher incidence of poverty, climate change is going to have greater impact on the lives of the people. But where do we finance it from? And like I said, there is a need for a paradigm shift in the manner in which we see financial architecture globally. Uh, the way it has worked in the last 100, 200 years, I don't think is going to work anymore in the same manner, in the same manner, uh, the frameworks that we are looking at. It is not likely to answer the problems of the world going forward. It's, it's a very different world which is emerging and we need very different solutions, not tinkering with the present architecture and making a little better here and a little better there. We can do forecasting, uh, better forecasting, better methodologies, but forecasting to what effect? 
when you say that then factor it into your budget you can factor into budget when you have money into that budget so i i'm i'm talking i'm raising a fundamental question here it's not a question about whether we are concerned with it or not we are concerned with poverty we are concerned with illiteracy we are concerned with health issues all of that employment uh, and inequality but also climate change so it's i mean it's it's part of the entire thing yesterday we were talking about green tagging what we are talking now about is green tagging expenditure in the budget so every expenditure of every sector has to be green tagged now we can do all that but tag to what to what purpose <laughs> that's the question yes. okay we've got about five minutes left so i'm going to ask our panelists to, uh, to end with this great question from sam which is how do you not let a crisis go to waste in terms of you know what are the lessons learned from the recent years in terms of fiscal planning so let me start with rosamond give you uh, a minute or so to to share some remarks and, and final thoughts as well before we go around in reverse order uh, and then wrap up Thanks again. I fundamentally, if the fiscal is bad, your ability to do anything is is almost zero. Um, so there, there, there is a, a a great requirement, I believe, to ensure that the fiscal framework is tight, is robust, and can respond to the 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 needs of of the country, and those needs might be diverse. Clearly, climate change poses a particular threat, um, particularly to small states, as we've seen, and preparing ourselves to deal with those impacts is urgent. The country must put itself in a position to be able to respond, um, strengthen its fiscal resilience, and use that then as a platform to raise the additional financing that is required. To, 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 to finance the investments needed to address climate impacts. It, it can't happen without a strong fiscal position. And secondly, whatever that framework is, it has to be so adaptable and responsive to shocks itself because those shocks will continue to come and governments will have to be able to maneuver and still maintain um, a, a semblance of good governance and, and fiscal sustainability. Um, thanks again for the opportunity um, to share those thoughts. Arvind, what are your thoughts on? No, so you're very right that uh, a crisis, and, and, and we are seeing that it actually is not happening. In India, for instance, uh, expenditure on health has gone up from about 2.5% of the GDP to 6% of the GDP on when the pandemic happened. And it's now getting sustained at that level with very rapid expansion in public interest, health in, uh, infrastructure. Uh, in states like Rajasthan, for instance, we have absolutely free health care now uh, to everybody. So it's not poor, rich, anything, but no, uh, I mean, health care is free. Uh, and uh, it's paid for through insurance, uh, paid for by the government and so on. So this this is happening. Uh, we, these are being strengthened. Similarly, we saw the, uh, during the pandemic, um, a very, a very rapidly rising digital inequality in education. So from private education, private schools, which are very good schools, had 
uh, very quickly moved into creating, uh, you know, kind of uh, distant education systems and so on. But the government schools in rural areas, in villages, municipal schools, etc., didn't have that. So the the difference between the levels of education in those schools and the others has in, increased, which also creates a problem in terms of the opportunities for employment. So governments have now gone into, like in the state of Rajasthan, uh, decision has been taken, has been implemented that every school will have a digital classroom and then the whole infrastructure to support that. So the crisis is resulting in that kind of uh, opportunity that is improving overall. Uh, and this, uh, in the long run, it will have a impact, a positive impact on the economy if you have better equipped people coming. Our, our skill development infrastructure has been uh, scaled up in a very big way. So these things are beginning to happen. And I, so I would say that, there, you know, even though there has been a, this crisis was a monumental proportion, but a lot has happened on that count. Um, informal sector is being strengthened by different states in different ways, uh, by um, creating more social, um, net, you know, kind of uh, safety networks for informal workers who were earlier completely uh, falling off the envelope whenever such a crisis happened. So those things are beginning to happen already. Thank you. Finally, over to you. Uh, I, I just echo what Rosamund and Arvind said, which is that I, I do think that these recent crises have highlighted just the importance of recognizing the risks and shocks. And in, in particular, these kind of big uh, sort of potentially catastrophic risks are real. They're no longer the stuff of science fiction. We've learned that from the pandemic, uh, from the energy crisis. And you've got to build an expectation of those into your fiscal frameworks. And uh, I think to illustrate just with an example here from the UK, we have a tendency to budget all the way up to the limit and run the public finances very close to the wire here, and which I think is a tendency in every country. Um, chancellors typically set themselves anywhere between kind of 0.5 and, and anywhere between 0.1 and 0.5% of GDP against whatever their fiscal target is in five years time. The kind of shocks we've been talking about here are 10, 20% of GDP, so many multiples of the kind of fiscal space that finance ministers leave themselves to manage these kind of shocks. Um, and, and, and as a result, um, they find it very difficult to, uh, to finance them when they arrive. So I think, I think Rosamond's point about building and resilience in your fiscal framework to the fact that shocks are inevitable, you just don't know where they're going to come from yet, is, is really important. Absolutely. Thank you so much to all three panelists for a um, really fantastic set of presentations, ranging from the kind of projections and the planning uh, that OBR does in the UK to dealing with the complex and compounding challenges in India um, to dealing with the, the aftermath and the, the sort of challenges of the frequent extreme weather events in Dominica. I think if there is one takeaway from this session is that uh, fiscal frameworks have to be crisis ready at all times. So with that uh, lovely thought, I will let you all go. Uh, please do.